Good morning. If you have your uh, Bible, would you please open it up to Acts chapter 5? You're looking for verse 17. Or if you have our app, you can open up the Bible there and get to that passage uh, as we begin. You can also click over to the notes section if you want to follow along with some of the major sermon points I'm going to highlight today. And once you're there, if you would do me the gracious favor of uh, standing for the word of the Lord uh, once you get to that place. Now, we're going to cover uh, 37 verses today, uh, so I'm not going to read all that to you up, up front, um, but I want to read just the first couple verses so that we might have some context. And the reason we stand uh, is not out of tradition or ceremony, though we absolutely could stand for those reasons. Uh, we stand out of reverence and awe for the Word of God, knowing that when we open up this book, it is not uh, uh, unlike opening any other book uh, that we have. Uh, this book is the Word of God delivered to us, and when we will commit to read it, when we will commit to write it down, when we will commit to speak it, and when we will commit, most of all, to share it with others, God will do things with it. Amen? All of which today we are asking that he might clarify our minds, open our hearts, and transform the work of our hands to that which is pleasing to him. So with a clear mind, a ready heart, and a willing spirit, would you hear the word of the Lord? Acts chapter 15, verse, excuse me, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. This is the word of the Lord, church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being together in one place as one family under the call of your name for the purpose of glorifying your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for all of the walks of life that are represented in this room, God from those who have been faithful for decades to those who have been faithful for minutes. We all, God, are dependent upon the great truth that your mercies are made new every morning. And so we ask this very morning we would receive mercy from you. God, that you would help remove distractions that seem so easily to steal our minds and our hearts away from you, including my own sin and weaknesses. Father, would you forgive me for the places I failed? Would you allow me to deliver your word carefully and clearly to your people? For your glory, God, not for myself but for you. We ask all of this for your great purpose and for the good of your people. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite pastimes is grocery shopping. I know that sounds odd, but food and cooking and food preparation has been something that uh, God has used as a blessing in my life since I was a small kid. Some of my favorite uh, memories are preparing holiday meals with my Italian mother and grandmother in the kitchen. And so as I grew up and uh, got married, God has blessed me with an opportunity to be the person in our home responsible for the cooking, which means I do the meal preparation, I do the grocery shopping, and I get to do uh, the cooking. Cooking has become my hobby. Food Network has become the place where I go to train. The grocery store, my supply outpost, and the kitchen, my great adventure in bringing taste and satisfaction to my family. One of my favorite things is to prepare, prepare a hot meal and have my children sit down with my wife and enjoy it and thank me for it. So I spent time and energy in this passion. For years, I spent time combing through the aisles of the local market, comparing ingredients, testing fruit and vegetables, checking prices, and comparing ingredients. And you know what? I've gotten pretty good at it, I think. I treat it like a Navy SEAL strike mission when I enter that grocery store. But you know what? All of this time and energy spent in the grocery store has not done. 
it has not prepared me to find a good church. And yet that's the common way we speak about it as people. We go church shopping in the same way we might go grocery shopping. If you're here today to visit, I'm glad you're checking Generations Church out. But I want you to let you know up front, we are not perfect. We will not meet all your needs. We will fail to meet your expectations. But we do worship the one who is perfect. And today we're going to examine a passage that will remind us that on this side of eternity, the church is imperfect, but that Jesus is. And so that's your big idea today, is the imperfect church will persevere. The imperfect church will persevere. And so we're going to walk our way through about 37 verses. So we're going to move quickly through the narrative, and I'm going to try to make some points along the way that I hope will impact you. But that's the big idea I don't want you to forget this morning, is that the imperfect church will persevere. So let's begin with the verses I read to you already, the context of the story today. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. The word is out about the gospel and its ministry here in the first century in and around Jerusalem. We're still in the wake of the passage that I got to preach three weeks ago on the lamed beggar who was healed by Peter and John. The apostles are here present, preaching about Christ, and they're seeing many people transformed, healed, and joining the movement through the signs and wonders and preaching in the gospel of Jesus. The crowd is growing and, and gaining traction among the culture. Think of the early, if you've ever been a part of a church plan, think of the early kind of chaos where you see people and, and energy and enthusiasm and exciting things happening as people are getting saved and joining the church. All of this is going on in and around Jerusalem in the thousands, by the way. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the Sadducees, who have distinct theological differences, come together united in their jealousy of the gospel and testimony of these men. Are they encouraged and filled with excitement at the healing and transformation of the lives of their brothers and sisters? Nope. They're jealous. Notice that when you're full of jealousy or covetousness, you find it difficult to find the joy and good that others are experiencing. All you're intent on is what you're not getting. That's what's going on inside the minds and hearts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they rise up, they use their political power and religious clout, and they arrest the apostles and throw them in public jail for all to see, hoping, I imagine, in small part, to disgrace their testimony. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, what's interesting about the word life there in your Bibles? It's capitalized. What's the angel of the Lord making a reference to? The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the life there within. Verse 20, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, openly and honestly, I've never been to prison. But should I go to prison and God grant me the miraculous opportunity to be freed without persecution or prosecution, I'm not sure that I would go directly back to the very behavior that got me put there in the first place. And yet, 
the apostles are under such a conviction that the preaching of Christ must take place, that they're willing to persevere despite prosecution and persecution at the hands of the religious leaders of their day. God intervenes miraculously, sending an angel and opens the prison doors, frees them, and then gives them this direction to go back to the temple and to continue to speak the words of life. Again, hey, that thing you got arrested for doing, yeah, the Lord wants you to keep doing it. How are you at persevering? How often do you quit at first difficulty? Or challenge? Would you stop at first opposition? Considering that, that perhaps opposition is a sign that obviously God isn't in it. And yet, many times, the very opposition that causes us to question our faith is the very purpose of God that he will use to encourage us and remind us of his sovereign providential control over all of our life. Sometimes opposition, sometimes difficulty is the very thing God will use in your life to remind you that he is in control and that you are not. And it is the very thing that he will use to show off to you and those who are opposing you. That's what he's going to do here. God is going to use providentially and sovereignly. This is how awesome our God is is that he will use the jealousy of the Pharisees and Sadducees to glorify himself even in their midst. So at daybreak, they return, the apostles, and they begin to teach of Christ once again. Verse 21b. Now when the high priest came, so this is the next morning after the apostles have been sitting in prison, they've now been freed and they're back in the temple. The high priest arrives and those who are with him, they called together the council, all of the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. This is where things get awesome. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison, get this, securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Awkward. <laughs> Verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. This is comedy, right? The high priest gathers all of his friends all of the council, all of the senate of the people. It means the elected officials that are there to represent the people and give them vision and voice into the process. He makes sure the C-SPAN cameras are rolling. He's dressed to the nines. They're going to do business and shut these troublemakers down. Send for the apostles, he commands. But when the officer comes, the prison is empty, nowhere to be found. The prison door is locked, no one inside. They're perplexed, embarrassed, and left wondering. Next, we get an eager informant informing the high priest that the guys that they put in prison are in the temple doing the very thing they threw them in for, proclaiming the name of Christ. The guards are sent back to arrest them a second time in 24 hours, no less. But notice now where the favor of the people lies with the apostles. 
so much so that even the armed guards are intimidated lest they take them by force and the people rise up and stone them. God is at work in the midst of their opposition and the church will persevere. Amen? And verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Here's the accusation and charge. Hey, we told you once already to quit this teaching. This was back after the lame beggar was healed. Sometimes our intent and our message is misunderstood by outsiders. Notice that the Pharisees and the Sadducees missed the entire intent of the gospel preaching of the apostles. Has Peter, in his preaching, had the apostles in their preaching, assigned the blame of Jesus' death upon the Sadducees and Pharisees? Absolutely. But is that the point of their sermon? The point of their sermon is that even though Jesus came up against great opposition, God found him worthy, even after his death, to raise him from the dead, to ascend him to the throne of heaven, that he has promised to return, and that the forgiveness of sin and the restoration of Israel is imminent through the power and testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the point of the gospel of Jesus. But all of the Pharisees and Sadducees have heard is their own guilt. And so they accused the apostles of trying to put Jesus' blood upon them. Now, if you remember just a few short months ago, back to Easter, and the trial of Jesus, do you know what the crowd whom the Pharisees and Sadducees were in the midst of cried out? Crucify him, crucify him. His blood be upon us and our children. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are accusing the apostles of making a statement that Jesus' blood is upon them when they've already taken responsibility for it. And so their own guilt, their own shame, their own pride drives this opposition. Verse 29, we get the apostles' first opportunity to testify and answer to the charges and the persecution. Notice how they re react. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Go ahead and underline that. Feel free to write that down. Feel free to bookmark that. Feel free to tattoo it somewhere you're going to see it. We must obey God rather than men is the declarative statement that Peter and the apostles answer to the charge. We told you to stop testifying about Jesus. What does Peter say? No, no, no. I can't obey that order because it comes in direct conflict with the call and the commission of God upon our life and our mission. We are going to be witnesses to Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, ascension to the throne, sending of the Holy Spirit, and promised return. And we're going to keep talking about that because that's what God told us to talk about until the day he calls us home. Thus the mission of the church has continued for 2,000 years, bringing us to June 10th, 2018. Or won't we, church, persevere and make the same commitment? We must obey God rather than men. Continually, the testimony of Jesus and the life that it calls us to becomes unpopular. Will we obey God rather than men? Will we persevere when it is difficult? Will we persevere when we are challenged? Will we persevere when we are ridiculed? Will we persevere when we are laughed at? Will we persevere 
when we are isolated from friends and family and loved ones? Will we obey God rather than men? Peter continues, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles and Peter's response can be summed up in three pieces. First is their fierce commitment to obey God rather than men. And might I suggest that when we as Christians and the church get this wrong, which means when we, when we trade the obedience to God for the obedience to man, or when we trade pleasing God for the pleasing of man, that is when we begin to reveal and put on full display the imperfections of our church. Let me say that again. When we trade pleasing God for pleasing people, we put on full display the imperfections of the church. We fall into what the scripture calls the fear of man. When we begin to make compromises to please people rather than God, this is nothing less than idolatry. When we lift up the worship and the opinion and cares of created beings over the will and desire of the almighty creator God, Jesus, we are failing and embracing our imperfection. Psalm 118, 8, which by the way, if you grew up as a uh, student ministries student in the 90s, you knew that this was the direct center verse of the Bible because you took all kinds of quirky Bible quizzes like that before youth ministry was cool. Psalm 118, 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. This is the very center. If you take Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation 22 in the very last verse of the Bible, this is the very center verse of the Bible as orchestrated and ordained by those who put the verses in. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. The apostles know this deeply, not only because they're Old Testament scholars, but because they've seen the testimony firsthand within the last 24 hours. Hey, God can overcome a jail cell door. Hey, God can overcome armed guards. There is nothing God cannot overcome to accomplish his will and purposes. Amen? Amen. The imperfect church will persevere. The second part of the apostles' answer could be summarized as the testimony of the gospel. They once again repeat. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees may be clear. This is our testimony and what we are witnesses to, that you put Jesus to death and hanged him on a tree, but God, seeing fit to raise him up, has now accomplished the forgiveness of our sins and the restoration of all things unto Christ. And then finally, their role and responsibility. They will be witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God in this calling. This is their response. Verse 33. Let's see how the Pharisees and Sadducees respond. This is actually, it's like reading a court reporter's notes. Verse 33. That's what Luke has done for us. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The Pharisees are enraged and want to kill the apostles, put them to death. This is a response from those who will not accept and who will not receive the truth. They are not ready to be confronted with their need for repentance. Sometimes you will put forth a testimony of the gospel in front of people and they are just not ready. They're not ready to be confronted with their need for repentance. They're not ready to be confronted with their weakness and their guilt and shame. They're not, they're not ready. They're, uh, uh, for whatever reason, they're either prideful or fearful 
but they're just not ready. And so they will respond in anger and agitation when you try to confront them with their need for someone greater than themselves for salvation. That's how the Pharisees and Sadducees respond. In addition, as an interesting textual note, uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And so this, this testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead is a theological affront to them as well. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to opposing God. Gamaliel is an interesting character within the the book of Acts. He has great influence on the church, both in this moment, and he's also the mentor and uh, primary educator and influencer of a man named Saul, who we'll meet in Acts chapter 9, who will later become the Apostle Paul, responsible for perhaps the greatest church planting movement in the history of the church. And so at this moment, Gamaliel stands up and using wisdom, a little political savvy, and a little history, stands up and says, whoa, 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 listen, listen, before things get out of hand, let's take a look back for a minute. Remember remember Thaddeus? Remember how crazy politically tense it was when he rose up and and drew those 400 men and they were threatening war and revolution and and he was claiming to be somebody? Remember when he died, what happened? Oh, that's right, the movement dispersed and his followers lost interest and confidence. Or remember Judas the Galilean? Remember at the time of the Roman census where, when the tax hike was going up, remember all that political outrage he was able to stir up and how many were drawn out after him and they planned an insurrection? Remember too when, when he died, how things just seemed to fall apart? Let, let's take a lesson from history and, and leave these men alone. Because if Jesus died and stayed that way, this won't be a big deal. But if Jesus died and is alive again, we will be opposing God himself. And so I will borrow from Gamaliel's wisdom today and and lay the same wager before you. You see, either Jesus is just a fraud, and all of us in here are really just not very bright, weak-souled people, who need a little extra care and comfort in our lives, and eventually the church will just go by the way of the dinosaurs. And Jesus is just a a nice fairy tale that we get to believe in and then someday die. Or, Jesus is the very Son of God who came and lived, died, 
but didn't stay that way. And faithful men and women have given their blood to testify to that truth for thousands of years and will continue to do so until he returns and every eye sees, every ear hears, every knee bows, and every, listen, every, every, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. I'll lay that right there and let you consider it. Verse 40. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I think at some point, the Pharisees are just trying to save face. Right? Like, you know, Gamaliel's probably right. If Jesus is dead and not really resurrected, and this thing will probably blow over. But we had them arrested. We looked foolish when the prison was empty this morning. And so they're not walking out of here clean. And so they beat the apostles and then give them a charge, another warning. Hey, no more preaching in Jesus' name. I think this is rooted in some of their pride because Jesus' name is being lifted up as greater than their own. And so they beat the apostles, give them another charge and a warning, and say, don't, no more. I want to consider something else Gamaliel says that is a beautiful truth before we move forward. And it is, that which is of God will persevere, and that which is not will fall apart. So I want to take courage, church. If, if God is for you, if that which you put first in your life is a part of building his kingdom, that is what will in your life persevere through difficulty and persecution and prosecution. The other things in your life that you were building, though they may be nice and even impactful, but they are not eternal. Those things that we invest in as a church that are building the kingdom of God will last forever and will persevere the difficulty you see, the kingdom of God is the only thing that when we invest in with our time, energy, talent, and resources will persevere to the forever. And so even in the midst of our imperfections and failings, and we're going to see some even present here in the New Testament church in a few minutes, if we will invest in the kingdom and build the kingdom of God through faithful gospel ministry, we will persevere. Verse 41 catch up with the apostles. Then they left the presence of the council. After their beating, after receiving another charge to quit testifying, and then get this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now I can count on one hand how many times I've been beat up in my life, and it really hasn't been a whole lot since elementary school and that, that tragic occurrence with that large fifth grade girl. It just hasn't been. Okay? But I can tell you very clearly, rejoicing at, at, at the opportunity to receive a beating is not my first emotion. And yet the apostles are arrested, freed by the Holy Spirit, an angel of the Lord, commissioned to preach again, arrested again, brought before the council, accused in public of something that they have no intention of doing, are, are freed because they haven't done anything wrong and yet receive an unjust beating and their response is to rejoice. Why? Because they have an eye on that which will persevere and it is the kingdom of God. Listen, they rejoice because they counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Whose name? Jesus' name. 
And every day, get this, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They rejoice at the beating they receive because God has counted them worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And then they go right back to the behavior that got them the beating in the first place. Luke's very explicit. He says they did not cease. They would not stop from teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They did this in their homes and they did this in the temple. Which is a side note. We, by the way, follow the same example even today. This would be our temple time, Sunday morning, preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Christ. And then when we gather in community groups or affinity groups or ministry groups or serving teams, we do the same thing, do we not? I want to talk about this rejoicing. Because what it strikes me is that the apostles do something very strange here that I think only happens in the kingdom of God. They find value in suffering. I want you to consider that for a moment. They find value in suffering. Let's be honest. We spend most of our life trying to avoid any measure of suffering. I am constantly aware of any time I experience suffering and I stop doing whatever activity is leading to that. But the apostles find value in it. And so as Christians, this turns suffering on our head. And and I might even say that if you're in the midst of suffering right now, God has given you a tremendous opportunity to testify to Jesus Christ. Because those who are suffering around you are looking for their hope are looking for a sense of peace, are looking for a sense of joy. And when you can endure suffering in the same manner that the apostles did, with hope, with peace, with joy, it testifies to the power of Jesus Christ. And so why can we find value in suffering? I'll give you two reasons that I came up with this week. Number one, it teaches us about Jesus. Because even when you and I suffer, we suffer as sinful and broken creatures on this side of a sinful and broken creation. There's just going to be some level of suffering in all of our lives because of sin. But when Jesus suffered, he was completely just and righteous. And so when we suffer, we can, in a small way, as a dim reflection of Jesus Christ, understand what Jesus must have gone through, especially when we suffer unjustly. And so we have have just another nugget of truth, another enlargement of our soul when we suffer, we have an opportunity to learn about Jesus. Number two is it draws us into closer relationship with him. Why? Because we worship a savior who suffered. Which means when I'm in the midst of my suffering, I have somewhere to go where there's someone who truly knows what I'm enduring. Someone who can listen and have compassion. Someone who can listen and whisper in my prayer time, I know. I understand. I've been there. And what's more, not only can that person listen and have compassion, he can also bring peace to us. My child, this suffering will not be for always and forever. I'm coming back. This will be temporary compared to the glory that await you, to the beauty I have secured for you, the fulfilling life, the exhale of a breath.
move into chapter 6 as we close. We focus on the ability of the apostles to persevere, knowing that the church will persevere. Now, we looked at kind of the, the good stuff. Now we're going to look a, bit, a little bit of the dirty laundry in the first century church. Chapter 6. Now in these days, this is, this is after the persecution has subsided, the apostles are continuing to, to teach and preach, and, and the church is growing and functioning and, and, and continuing to move. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, so this is a growth season for the church, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Here's the problem in the first century church. As they grow, they're continuing to find influence among people who are culturally different and from different culturally cultural walks of life. Now, these are all Jews at this point, but we've got two categories of Jew. We've got the Hebrew-speaking Jews. These are Jews who resided in and around Jerusalem and stayed faithful to the Jewish language, Jewish heritage, and Jewish traditions. Then you've got the Hellenist Jews. Now, these are Jews who have been spread out from Jerusalem. They live in other parts uh, of the Roman Empire, and they come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the traditional Jewish celebration and feasts. If we go back to Acts 2, we see that Peter preaches, thousands get saved, and I would suggest that some of those people that get saved are Hellenistic Jews. That means Jews who lived from far away, came to Jerusalem for Passover, got saved by Jesus, and chose not to go home but to stay to be a part of this crazy thing called the church. Well, as that number has increased, you've got these racial and cultural tensions arise in the first century church because Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews were seen as second-class citizens or those who didn't fit the paradigm and profile of what a Jew should be. If you've ever walked into a church lobby or a church sanctuary and felt like you didn't fit, that everybody's kind of looking at you and pointing at you, and you looked around and you didn't look like anybody, you didn't sound like anybody, you felt what the Hellenistic Jews probably felt here in the first century. We're told that the first century church has a disbursement of food to support particularly those widows. So this would be a strict definition of widow, which means no husband and no children. So they became the church's responsibility. There's no social programs from the government at this point. This was the social program. The church would disperse food daily to those. And what we're seeing here is within the church, there's a clear vein of favoritism toward the more traditional Hebrew-speaking Jews. So at the daily disbursement, the widows who speak Hebrew get a little extra portion. The widows who speak Greek get a little less. Imperfect church, amen? Imagine walking up to the uh, welcome table when you arrive on Sunday morning, and if you knew the right phrase, wore the right clothes, said the right thing, well, you get a whole donut. <laughs> but should you not, well, we've got a lovely platter right here of donuts cut in half and quarters for you. Then imagine walking into worship and here, seeing the apostles. Oh, my gosh, look, look, look. Pastor Jeff's preaching today. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. I can't wait. Man, I really like to sit up close so I can take notes. Oh, wait, wait. You know what? Yeah, we, we're glad you're here today, but we've got a special section of seating in the back for you. W would you mind sitting back there, please? Thank you very much. Even at its onset, the church was imperfect. Even at its onset, it had problems and troubles. Cultural divisions had crept up in the church. 
There's favoritism being shown to one group over another. Frustration had festered among the people. They became discontent and angry. Arguments had arisen before the apostles. They're feuding, factions becoming a problem, and it's gaining momentum, and the apostles' continual attention and time is being diverted away from the ministry of the gospel of Christ to the ministry of, of racial and relationship reconciliation. And so what are they to do? Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius. And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. So we see the problem is racial and cultural division and favoritism. Here's the solution, and I would suggest that we can learn from how the apostles deal with their imperfections and how to deal with some of our imperfections. Here's the first thing. Priorities are set for the apostles. That's the first thing. We've got a problem, but here, listen, we need to set the priority and clarity of the vision for what we're supposed to be doing here. Our primary purpose and vision is to devote ourselves to the testimony of the preaching of Jesus Christ and to prayer and study of the word. The priorities are set. Whenever you face an imperfection within the church, our temptation is to jump in to try to fix it. What we need to do is perhaps take a step back and say, okay, what is our priority? What is our vision? What are our, our values in this, in the midst of this? That's what the apostles do first. They say, it is not right for us to give up that which God has called us to, to wait tables. Not that waiting tables is a bad thing because they're going to set up a solution for that, but it's not what their priority and purpose is in the church. That's the first thing they do. They set the priority. Prayer and ministry of the word according to their calling and commission by Jesus. Number two, and here's the cool thing, one of my favorite things that they do to solve this problem, a team is both created and empowered to do the work of the ministry. See, when you get beyond a, a small group in a church, it's time to start releasing people into ministry. It's time to start identifying their gifts and their talents and their callings and creating teams. And then most importantly, empowering those teams to do the work that they're gifted to do. And so that's what the apostles do. They, in this instance, are going to choose seven men who have these qualifications. First, they have to have a good reputation, which means they can't be the people that were standing at the welcome table handing out half donuts. That's not going to work. <laughs> these have got to be men who have a good reputation among us. Number two, they have to be full of the Holy Spirit. They have to be Jesus-loving, spirit-dependent men who are called by God. Second, they've got to be full of wisdom. Why? Because they're going to have to navigate some, some difficult situations. They're going to have some really challenging conversations ahead of them. I don't know if you've ever tried to navigate racial differences, which, by the way, social media is never the place to do that. Uh, but that's what these men are going to have to do. They're going to have to sit down and have people who are explicitly culturally different try to understand each other. So they've got to be full of the Spirit, and they've got to be full of wisdom, and they've got to have a good reputation. And then they're going to be appointed to administer this duty, this responsibility. They're going to be identified. They're going to be formed into a team. And the most important, they're going to be empowered by the apostles. The apostles are going to give this away. That's what good leadership does. It gives leadership away. It, it pushes it away. And so to solve this imperfection, they set priorities, they create a team, and then most importantly, they pray. <laughs> They lay hands on these men, 
and they pray and speak over them and ask God to bless their efforts. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what do the apostles do? They set the priority back upon the work of the kingdom of God, and then what happens? The church perseveres despite a crazy imperfection. You see, the imperfect church will persevere as it sets its priorities to the work of the kingdom of God. The imperfect church will persevere as it sets its priorities to the work of the kingdom of God. If God has brought you here this morning, we believe greatly that he has a purpose for you and that he does not waste time. But there is good news for you here today. See, for those of you who are suffering, there is one who knows where you are, has been there, and offers hope and perseverance. For those of you who came here this morning seeking the perfect church, you will not find it, but you will find the one who is perfect in Jesus Christ. And so today, if you're ready to commit to Jesus, I believe there are two things you must believe and one thing you must do today. First, you must believe on the authority of God's word that you cannot help yourself spiritually. That you are a sinner and that you are among the imperfect suffering that Jesus came for. And second, you must believe that Jesus is able to do what you cannot do. That you cannot save yourself, but that he can save you. That he is our great physician who has come for the sick and the suffering. That you, like the church, is not perfect, but Jesus is. That Jesus has satisfied God and that he is willing to place his character into your account. That he died to remove your sin. That he rose from the dead so that you might know that God is satisfied with Jesus and what he has done on your behalf. If you're ready to believe those two things, there's a final one thing that you must do. You must, commit, you must commit yourself to him. The Bible speaks of this in a variety of ways, but in each case, it is clear. It is an act of our will that we believe in Jesus and that we place ourselves in his hands. And so I'm going to pray for us, and I invite you to do that right now as I pray. And if you're ready, we want to we meet with you. We're going to be praying and serving communion. We'll explain that in just a minute, but... If you're ready to believe those things and do that one thing, please don't leave this space without talking to one of us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your perfect word, God. And I pray that despite my imperfections, God, and brokenness and weaknesses, that you would use your word today to influence your people. We thank you for the early church, God, and that you were not afraid to write down both the amazing and the awful. And we pray that you might use both those things to influence us as a church that seeks nothing more than to glorify your name here in Southern California. That, God, you would give us tremendous grace for our imperfections that have wounded each other. And that you would set our eyes off of the things that we don't like, and you would set them back to the kingdom work that you've given us to do. That you would give us men and women that are full of the Spirit, that have great wisdom and have good reputation among us, to help us move and, and work through those imperfections and that you would find glory in that. We ask all of this through your amazing and wonderful son, Jesus Christ.